You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together verses 18 through the end of the chapter. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful again for the opportunity to gather together as your people before your word, and it is our desire that you would make us more like Christ. We thank you that your word sanctifies your people and that in the power of your word that you continue to work in our hearts and in our lives by your spirit, and we pray that the spirit would be our guide and our teacher this morning and that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand your word And to see the things that are here from your perspective, may we delight in what you have called us to, even if it is suffering and persecution for the for the faith. May we delight in the fact that the world would hate us because we belong to you. And may we delight most of all that we belong to you and that you, by your grace, have chosen us out of the world. So help us to think rightly about these things. And may you be glorified in our study and our time here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John chapter 15, and we have been looking at the reaction of the world to Christians and the fact that the world hates us. And it was interesting to see how Marty's message last week tied in with what we've been looking at in recent weeks. Uh, Marty mentioned the persecution that our Christian brothers and sisters suffer around the world as a result of their faith and how the world hates us because we are lights in the midst of darkness and we stand as lights in the midst of a very dark world. And so Marty mentioned that and it was kind of a delight to see him tie that in and give us somewhat of of an international perspective on the church and what God is doing around the world. Um, Jesus promised us persecution. He promised us affliction. Paul said it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of, of God. And since Jesus promised that we would be hated by the world, it should come as no surprise to us when, in fact, we see the world hating us. And in our own day, in our own culture, we see the world hating us with an increasing hostility and an increasing fervor. And that shouldn't shock us. I mean, after all, when we came to Christ, we came to a Savior who we knew was bloody and bruised and who suffered and died on a cross for us and rose again, whose death brought us life. And we know that we came to a Savior who was rejected by the world and so hated by the world that they killed Him. So it should come as no surprise to us then that we would be promised similar persecutions and similar sufferings. Did we really think that the world would respond differently to the people of Christ than it does to Christ? Should we really think that the world, having disapproved of and rejected and hated Christ, would love us who represent Him 
and love Him and serve Him and are identified with Him? Should we really think that? I mean, to even ask those questions is to answer it, right? But often we don't even ask those questions. We just kind of live like life as if the world should love us, and then we're shocked and dismayed when the world rejects us and hates us, and, and we're and we're the pariahs, and we're on the outside, and the family reject us, and they don't want to talk to us, and they don't want to get into Facebook conversations with us because of the stands we take. And these things should not shock us at all. We were promised this. And in verses 18 through 21, which we looked at in recent weeks, the Apostle... No, I don't know why I said the Apostle Paul, because he wasn't here at this time. Jesus gave four reasons why the world hates us and rejects us. Number one, it hates us because we are not of the world. It hates us, number two, because we've been chosen out of the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, the world hates us. Your election is the reason the world hates you, because Christ chose you. Third, the world hates us because we name the name of Christ, and we are identified with the name of Christ. We bear his name. And fourth, the world hates us because it does not know God. And that took us to the end of verse 21. So now we come to verses 22 through 25. And Jesus is focusing in in verses 22 through 25 on something that he alludes to at the end of verse 21 when he says that the world hates us and will do these things because it does not know the one who sent him. That is, it does not know the Father. And and now what Jesus is going to do is he is going to kind of explain that or expand upon that idea that the world persecutes Christians because of Him, and they persecute Him because ultimately they do not know the Father. And so the hatred of the world really is, though it is aimed at Christians, it is aimed through Christians toward the One whom Christians represent. And that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But the world can't hate the Lord Jesus Christ, so it hates us. And the reason the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ is because really that hatred is a hatred for the Father. It is for a hatred for God. And that's stated explicitly in verse 23. Look at it. He who hates me hates my father also. And it's stated again at the end of verse 24 where Jesus says that they hated him and they hated the father as well. So the world pours out its white, the white hot fury of its hatred upon Christians because really they hate Christ. And when he was here, they poured out the white hot fury of their hatred on Christ because really they hated the father. And that's the essence of verses 22 through 25. And the zenith, the peak of the whole passage is summed up in verse 25 at the very end where Jesus says, this was done to fulfill what was written in their law that they hated me without a cause. Now we're going to get to verse 25 in due course and before today is over. But before we dive in at verse 22, I want you to notice a structure in the, in the passage that is important to notice. Notice the parallelism there. Verses 22 and 23 are a thought. Verse 24 is a thought. And the phrases are paralleled with each other. Jesus is not repeating himself because he doesn't say the exact same thing twice. But he says two different things and they run kind of parallel to each other. So I want you to notice verse 22. If they had not come, sorry, if I had not come and spoken to them, that is paralleled with the beginning of verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did. Back up in verse 22. They would not have sin. Down in verse 24. They would not have sin. Up in verse 22. But now they have no excuse for their sin, down in verse 24. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. And that idea of being hated by uh, the world and hating Christ and the Father, that's paralleled with verse 23, where Jesus says, He who hates me hates my Father also. So Jesus is not repeating himself. He's giving two different ideas, one focusing in verses 22 to 23 on the works that he did, And then in 24, sorry, the words that he said, verse 24, the works that he did. And so they are parallel statements describing two different things 
given kind of with a parallel structure in order to show that each one of these contributes to demonstrating that the world hated him completely without a cause. And so when you look at the words of the Lord Jesus and his works, and they go together, they are a package deal. When you look at the words that Jesus spoke and the works that he did, and then you look at the reaction of the world, we can truly say the world hated him without a cause. And that's the point. The words that he spoke, the works that he did, then you look at the reaction that he got, and you say it was completely unjustified. The hatred of the world is unjustified. It is irrational. It is undeserved. It was They hated Christ without a cause, without any justification or reason for it. And they hate the Father as well, without any cause, without any reason, without any justification. And guess what, Christian? They're going to hate you. And you know why? Without a reason, without a cause, and without any justification. They hated Him without a cause. They will hate Christians without a cause as well. So, let's begin at verse 22 and look at the words that He spoke. The words that He spoke. The words that He spoke demonstrate that their hatred for Him was unjustified. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. They, in the passage, is the world. If He had not come into the world and spoken to the world, then they, the world, would have no excuse for their sin. But now they have an excuse. They would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. What does Jesus mean when He says, the world would not have sin? If I had not come and spoken to them, the world would not have sin. That's kind of an awkward phrase, isn't it? What does Jesus mean by that? That the world, those in the world who hated him, would not have any sin. Sometimes it's easier when we're trying to arrive at the true meaning of a text to first eliminate some things that we know he can't possibly mean. So let's begin there. What do we know that he can't possibly mean? First, Jesus cannot be saying that had he not come and spoken to the world, that they were not, that would not have been sinners. It's obvious, right? Were people in the world, men and women, sinners before Jesus came? Yeah, they certainly were. They were born in sin, born in iniquity. We understand that. And furthermore, Jesus cannot be saying that if he had not come, that the world would not have been guilty of sin or accountable for sin. Because were men and women guilty of sin and accountable for sin before Jesus came? Yeah, they were, because they had the Old Testament law, which declared that they were sinners. They had the testimony of their conscience, which declared that they were sinners. They had the proclamation of the prophets, and they saw examples of God's judgment, like the the drowning of Pharaoh and Egypt's, uh, sorry, not Pharaoh, but Egypt's army in the Red Sea, and the, the drowning of the entire world in a worldwide flood. God held men accountable for their sin because people were sinners and they knew they were sinners. And even those who sinned without any knowledge of the law had the testimony of creation and the testimony of their conscience bearing witness to the fact that they were sinners and they needed to repent and seek after that God. But though men knew God, they suppressed that truth and unrighteousness And rather than worshiping God of creation, as he had revealed himself in creation, men instead began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And all of that is in Romans chapter 1. So Jesus cannot be saying that men were not sinners before he came and spoke to them, nor can he be saying that men were not guilty of sin or held accountable for sin before he came and spoken to them. What is Jesus saying? I think it helps us if we kind of narrow down the definition of sin just a little bit. There is one particular sin that is mentioned in these very verses. One particular sin that is mentioned in these very verses, and it's mentioned more than one time in this context. What is it? They hated him. They hated him. I think that is the sin that Jesus is speaking of. In other words, he's not talking about sin just in general. Just the idea of sin or the principle of sin or generically speaking of sin. Jesus is speaking of this one particular sin. And he is, he is not saying that men were not guilty of sin or that men were not sinners. 
But listen, as a result of him coming and speaking to them and declaring to them the truth, and then hearing the words that he spoke and doing the and seeing the words that the deeds that he did, it is the degree of their sin which is now far greater than it ever was before. They were guilty of sin, they did commit sin, they were accountable for sin, but now they have heaped upon their guilt this one great sin that they heard the words that came from his mouth, they saw the miracles that he did. And they hated him in spite of that. And that sin is heaped upon their guilt. And Jesus is saying, had I not come and said that, spoken those words, and done those deeds, then they would not have had to give an account for this sin of hating me. But now, they have no excuse. Because they heard the words that he spoke, and because they saw the deeds that he did, now, truly, they are without excuse. And they're hard-hearted, incalcitrant, unrepentant, unbelief. They're irrational and illogical and destructive love for darkness and hatred for the light. Now, it is all manifested in this, that now that the light has come and it is brighter than it had ever been, and they saw more evidence than they ever could have thought that they would need to see, they saw all of that, heard all of that, and still rejected Him, and still turned from it. And so, heaped up upon that guilt is this sin. If I had not come and spoken to them, not that they would not have any sin, but they would not have this sin, that they heard the light, they saw the light, and they turned from it. And now their self-righteousness and their pride and their incalcitrant, unrepentant love of darkness and unbelief, all of that is manifested and exposed for exactly what it is. Did Jesus deserve the hatred that he got from the world for his words? Think back to what he said. If Jesus had been a blasphemer, if he had blasphemed God, if he had spoke evil of men, spoke evil of God, if he had been short-tempered and and, and forked-tongued, if he had used his words to deceive people and to uh, criticize people, if he had been um, if he had been a slanderer, if he had been a gossip, if he had been a hateful person speaking hateful speech to people and cutting people down and being critical, if he had done those things, we might understand the world's hatred of him. In fact, we would have very good cause to join the world in their hatred of him. But that's not what the Lord Jesus did. Instead, he came and he spoke the truth about heaven and the truth about hell and the truth about eternal realities and about the Father and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom and the gospel and truth about their sin and truth about their unrighteousness and and truth about the demands of God and repentance and faith. And he promised them eternal life. He spoke to them words of life. And he promised them that he would that he would save them, that he would secure them everlastingly, that he would raise them up on the last day. And if they came to him, he would gladly give them life and forgive them of their sins. He offered them salvation and forgiveness and a cleansed conscience and and escape from the wrath of God. Those were the things that he said. Is there anything that he ever spoke that was deserving of their hatred? Well, he called them out for their sin. Did he not? In fact, there's an interesting episode back in John chapter 7, and you may remember this, when Jesus was, uh, it was the time of the Feast of Booths, and Jesus was intending to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, but his brothers were going to go up ahead of him. And his brothers, who did not believe that he was the Messiah, They said to him, why don't you go up and declare yourself or proclaim yourself openly? Uh, They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, but they didn't believe that. And they also knew that the Jews in Jerusalem were intending to kill him. And so his brothers kind of laid down a gauntlet and they said, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Nobody who intends to be embraced openly hides himself like you've been doing. Nobody stays in the shadows. Go up at the Feast of Booths. The whole nation will be there. Reveal yourself to the entire nation. Proclaim yourself to be the Messiah. And they were mocking him. And what did Jesus say to them? John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. 
The world hates me because I testify of it that his deeds were evil. The next time somebody begins to present to you a hippie liberal Jesus who never condemned anybody or said anything bad about anybody's lifestyle, never criticized anybody or said anything to make anybody feel guilty, take them to John 7, verse 7. The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds were evil. If Jesus had embraced the world, if he had loved the world in the, in the sense of embracing the world system, if he had, if he had been worldly, the world wouldn't have crucified him. They wouldn't have hated him. I mean, he raised their, raised the dead. He healed their, their sick. He made, he restored lepers. He made lame men walk. He made the blind to see. He fed multitudes. You think the world rejected him? If he had embraced them in that way and not spoken of their evil deeds, do you think they would have crucified him? No, they would have loved him. But they could not tolerate this, a Messiah who spoke evil of their deeds. They would have embraced him for all the miracles that he did, but they would not embrace him even though he did the miracles because he testified of the world that its deeds were evil. And so they hated him. That's what verse 23 says. Verse 23, they would have not sinned, but now they have no excuse for the sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And we've seen this in John, that the connection between the father and the son it is such a close connection. It is such an indissoluble connection. Not because they are the same person, but because they are the same God. That to hate the Father is to hate the Son. And to hate the Son is to also hate the Father. And you cannot separate them in terms of having one affection for one of them and a different affection for the other one. You cannot love the Father and hate Christ and His Gospel. Nor can you love Christ and hate the Father. Whatever your attitude is toward the Father, that will be manifested in your attitude toward the Son. And whatever your attitude toward the Son is, is going to actually be a reflection of your attitude toward the Father. So if you hate the Father, you're going to hate the Son. If you hate the Son, you're going to hate the Father. It's inseparable. It cannot be otherwise. And Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 23, when he said, All judgment has been given to me, so that though all who honor the Son, will, or all who honor the Father, let me read it to you rather than try and quote it. It says, never trust somebody who cannot quote a passage of Scripture they think they can. John 5.23, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So you cannot honor one without honoring the other. So such is that connection between the two of them. Likewise, He said in John chapter 13, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. Embrace the one whom it belongs to Christ. You embrace Christ. And embracing Christ, you embrace the Father. You hate Christ, you hate the Father. This would have been a rebuke to the Jews. Don't miss that. This would have been a rebuke to the Jews who would have thought that they were honoring God by hating Christ. See, that was their mentality. They thought that they were doing God's service by killing Christ. And later they thought they would be doing God's service by killing Christians and by persecuting them. They thought that they could honor and love Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while killing Christians and hating Christ. Isn't that what Saul of Tarsus did? Didn't Saul of Tarsus think that he was glorifying God and defending the truth and honoring Yahweh in stoning Stephen and killing Christians? That's what he thought. But the truth is that Saul of Tarsus did not know Christ or the one who sent him. Verse 21 says that Saul of Tarsus did this because they do not know the one who sent me. It was Saul's ignorance of the Father that manifested itself in his hatred for the Son. And so it is with everybody who persecutes and hates Christians because they do not know the Father and they do not know the Son. So the words that he spoke, as gracious as they were, as loving as they were, as forgiving as they could have been, they rejected him in spite of that. They hated him in spite of that. And that shows that their hatred of him was without cause, unjustified. Now look at the words, the works that he did. The works that he did in verse 24. If I had not done among them 
the works which no one else did. Now, were there miracle workers before Jesus? Yeah, there were Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. But listen, the miracles that they did were not miracles done by their own power. They were miracles done by the power that was granted to them by God. Nobody who ever saw the miracles of the Old Testament prophets and Moses and Joshua, none of them ever got the impression that they were responsible for the work that was done or that the power came from them. But when Jesus performed a miracle, people said, Who is this man? Who is this man? That even the wind and the seas obey him. Because they understood that he was doing those miracles, not by a power granted to him from another, but out of himself. His own power, his own person did those signs and did those miracles. And the nature of his miracles and the number of his miracles outstripped everything ever done by any Old Testament prophet ever. Elijah and Elisha, who performed, I think, the most miracles of any individuals in the Old Testament, they were far outdone by the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracles that he did, he can truly say that no one else had done. And what he is pointing to there is the not only the scope of his miracles, the size of them. No Old Testament prophet made a man who was four days dead come back to life, like Jesus did Lazarus. No Old Testament prophet ever made the blind see. Nobody did these things. So the, the scope of his miracles and the vast number of his miracles, innumerable almost, those two things he did like nobody else had ever done. And if he had not come and done those things, then they would likewise not have had that sin of rejecting the light and the testimony. Now, his words and his works go together because remember his works demonstrate that his words are true. That was the point of Old Testament miracles. Miracles were not performed for the sake of of wowing people or entertaining people or just showing off. They weren't just ostentatious displays of power. Miracles were intended to authenticate that the one doing the miracle spoke as a spokesman for God, that he was God's man giving people the truth. How did you know if a man was receiving revelation and spoke for God? They had the ability to confirm their testimony through signs and wonders, which the apostles then did. So that was the purpose of works, of the works or the signs. And by works, Jesus is referring now to his signs. So signs, words, and works, they go together. Those two things are a double whammy. The Jews of his day looked at the words that he spoke or heard the words that he spoke, and they looked at the deeds that he did. And in spite of that enormous amount of testimony, they rejected the truth that he gave them. They turned from that, and they responded with an irrational, unjustified, and completely uncaused hatred. Was there anything in the works that he did which would have given men reason to hate him? Healing a leper and returning that leper to society and to productivity and to his family and and to his place and, and position in the culture and in society, was that worthy of hatred? Making lame men walk and blind men see and feeding multitudes of those things, things that would elicit people's hatred? They're not. And yet they watched all of these things, all of these deeds, and in spite of the graciousness, in spite of the fact that every miracle that he ever did, every sign he ever performed, every everything he ever did was marked by graciousness and kindness and compassion and grace, and he never did a miracle to ease his own discomfort. He never did a miracle for himself, always for other people. The most sacrificial and selfless individual who has ever lived, everything he did characterized by grace and love and kindness, and they rejected it. And listen, Christian, if you think that you will gain the world's approval by loving them more or being nicer to them, you are living under a delusion. A delusion. It will never happen. You can't out-nice Jesus. He was as nice and gracious as anybody could possibly be, and the world responded with hatred. And, and his words and his works, and then the response of the world shows that his, 
his action, their hatred of him in, in light of his actions and his words was completely unjustified. It was without cause. And so they rejected that light and they hated him. Verse 24 says, the end of verse 24, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. And notice again the connection there between the father and the son. They hated me and they hated my father. And again, the Lord Jesus is drawing this intimate connection between the father and the son so that to hate the one is to hate the other. To love the one is to love the other. To obey one is to obey the other. To honor one is to honor the other. Keep this in mind. It's, 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 it's akin to Jesus' statement to Philip back in chapter 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And again, not because they're the same person, but because they are the same God. Because Christ is the revelation of the Father, the express image of the nature and character of God the Father. Because all that can be seen of God is in the person of Christ, in flesh, before their eyes. To hate Him is to hate the One who He perfectly expressed, which was the nature of the Father as well. Because they are the same God. One substance, one being, one nature, though two separate and distinct persons. And so they hated him and they hated the Father as well. And the words that he spoke, the works that he did, nothing that he did deserved their hatred, which is why he says in verse 25, all of this came about to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, the hatred that the world had for the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that any rational person would have expected. You would expect that just looking at what he said and looking at the things that he did, if we were to analyze that from a rational perspective, a, 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 a logical perspective, there's no reason we would have expected the hatred. But God expected the hatred because he foretold it even back in the Old Testament law that though it might seem unforeseen to us from a human perspective, it was not unforeseen to God. He predicted actually the hatred that would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus uses the word law there in verse 25, the word law was often used to refer to the Pentateuch the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. But sometimes it was used very generally of all of the Old Testament Scripture, just kind of as a shorthand for the Old Testament revelation the Old Covenant. And that seems to be the sense in which Jesus is using it here because the quotation that he gives at the end of verse 25, they hated me without a cause, that does not come from the law. It actually comes from the Psalms. And it's not that Jesus got it wrong. He's just using law to refer to the, the Old Testament. He's just saying, as the Old Testament said, they hated me without a cause. Now here's a, something that's kind of interesting. There are two different passages in the Old Testament which could have been quoted from here. This, um, one of them is Psalm 35, one of them is Psalm 69. And if Jesus means one of those Psalms over the other, we're not sure which one it is. I will give you both quotations, from one from Psalm 35 and one from Psalm 69. First, Psalm 35, verse 19 says, Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without a cause wink maliciously. Alright, Psalm 35 verse 19. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. And then there's Psalm 69 verse 4. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So Psalm 69 verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are more powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. And you notice that there are two parallel statements there. Number one, being hated without a cause. And number two, having people who were wrongfully his enemies. Which one of those two is Jesus referring to? We can't know. We can't know which one. It might be, and I would suggest this, that Jesus is referring to both of those. He is actually saying both of these psalms, the sentiments expressed in both of these psalms, they are fulfilled by me. And so he is quoting both of those and saying these two psalms are fulfilled by me. Now here's what's interesting. Both the Psalms were written by David. 
Both of the Psalms, though they might be describing different situations, they, they very well could be describing the same situation. And both of the Psalms have messianic elements. That is to say, there are things in the Psalms which we can see are only fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and could not possibly have been fulfilled by David. Psalm 69 is a very messianic Psalm. And I'll give you two other verses from Psalm 69 which show how messianic it is. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Does that sound familiar? It should if you were back here ten years ago, Back when we were in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple and got rid of all the money changers, John quoted Psalm 69 verse 9. It says, For it is written in Scripture that zeal for thine house has consumed me. And he saw Jesus' passion for the house of God in driving out the money changers as being a fulfillment of ultimately that zeal that David had for God and for God's house. And so that was fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And Psalm 69 verse 21 They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that comes from the crucifixion, right? And though John notes that they gave him vinegar at the crucifixion, John doesn't quote Psalm 69, though he alludes to it. So in the Gospel of John, we have two quotations from Psalm 69 and one allusion, indicating that Psalm 69 is clearly messianic and fulfilled in Jesus. Now here's what David was describing in both of those psalms. David had men who had wrongfully become his enemies, and they were seeking opportunities to snare him, to overthrow him, to do him harm, and he describes those people, he describes the situation, and in both of those psalms, he prays to God and says, God, turn their plans against themselves so that those who seek to do wrong for me may themselves be caught in their own snare and destroyed. And do not let them rejoice over me, for these men are wrongfully my enemies, and they hate me without cause." Now notice that David does not say that everybody who hated him hated him without cause, right? Because that wouldn't be true. Don't you think that Uriah's family and Bathsheba's family and probably a few people from the household of Saul had good reason to hate David and probably did? They would have. But in this historical situation described in Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, David is describing a situation in which his enemies were fighting against him and he could honestly say, I have done absolutely nothing to deserve this situation. In other words... He was suffering unjustly. And in Psalm 69, he says that the reproaches of those who had, the reproach of those who reproached God had fallen on David. And David is saying, I am suffering because I'm God's man and I'm a righteous man. I've done nothing to deserve this and they hate me because they hate God. See how similar that is to John chapter 15? That's why Jesus quotes Psalm 69. They hated me completely without cause. It was unjustified. It's irrational. It's undeserved. And listen, the point is this. If David was hated without a cause, how much more the Lord Jesus? Because even David's virtues were mixed with his vices. Even David's best character qualities were tainted and mingled with his sin. But not so with the Lord Jesus. Perfectly righteous, without sin, perfect in everything he did, glorious, holy, pure, righteous in every way, if they hated, if their hatred for David was unjustified, how much more their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, Christian, they will hate you without cause. Understand it. There are going to be moments when the world lashes out against Christians and you say, what did we do to deserve this? We've done nothing. This is irrational. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It is because they hate the light and because they love darkness that they will hate you. Look at a, a, a very well-known example, Saeed Abedini, who is languishing in an Iranian prison. What did he do? Went over to Iran to build orphans, orphanages. Went over to care for orphans. 
And he's been sitting in an Iranian prison. What did he do to deserve that? Those who have hated him, hated him without a cause. You know why he's hated? He's hated because he's a Christian. And you know why he's not home? Because he's a Christian. I guarantee you, if he was a homosexual, I guarantee you, if he was a Muslim, he'd have been back on our shores a week after he was taken captive. But those who have hated him, hate him without a cause. Christian, they will hate you, and they will hate you without a cause. Now let me give you two things that you should remember and we should take away from this passage. Number one, let me check. I'm all, I'm all mixed up. Oh, yes, remember this. You were once part of the world as well. You were once part of the world as well. You once were hateful and hating one another. You once were a child of wrath, even as the rest. There was a time in your life when you hated the light as much as you now love the light. And, and there's a time in your life when you uh, love darkness as much as you now hate the darkness. There was a time when you were part of that world and you hated Christians. You hated the truth. You hated Christ. You hated God the Father and His Word. You hated righteousness. You hated holiness. That marks your life. However young it was when God delivered you from that. Remember, that is the pit from which you were dug. And never lose sight of that. And always remember that it is by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, not anything you have done and not any decision that you have made and not anything that has to do with something that you have done, but it is by the grace of God and the grace of God alone that you have been delivered from that and that God changed your affections. He opened your eyes. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He made you to love Him and to love righteousness. That was His grace and His gift to you. But remember, you were once there, and so you understand that, that they hate you because you represent Christ. And you once were among them. So you understand they need the gospel and they need the light and they need to be loved and they need to be reached out to. But remember, not to become self-righteous and thinking I'm not part of that. It's because you have been chosen by Christ out of the world that you're no longer in the world. So remember, you were once there. And second, Christian, make sure of this. If the world hates you, that it hates you without cause. The world hates you because you're a hypocrite. The world hates you because you're dishonest in your business dealings. If the world hates you because you are dabbling in darkness and living in sin while you profess righteousness, if the world hates you because you're uh, you're critical and you're cynical and you're hateful and you're bitter and resentful and a slander and a gossip, then the world hates you with cause. Make sure that the world hates you without cause. If it's because of righteousness that they hate us, then let them hate us. If it's because we hold the truth that they hate us, then let them hate us. If it's because of, of our stand, because we bear the name of Christ and we've been chosen out of the world and we don't love the world or the things in the world, if it's because we will not be compromising in our stands for morality and the truth and our love for Christ, if they hate us for those reasons, then let the world hate and let the world hate away. We have no reason to retreat. We have no reason to be in fear. And understand this, if the world hates you without a cause, that is the greatest compliment that can be paid to you because it means that you are in that moment and in that thing very much like your Savior whom the world hated without a cause. Make sure if the world hates you, that it hates you without a cause. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to you that you have delivered us out of the world and that you have translated us in the kingdom of your Son. And that is not without its personal cost to us. We have been called to count the cost of discipleship and to love Christ and to turn to Him and be willing to leave behind everything that the world may offer to us. And having counted that cost and become disciples and followers of Christ, we need to be reminded again that it may cost us even more in the future. And we thank you for that reminder and pray that you would give to us the grace to be lights in the midst of darkness and to be uncompromising in our love for the truth and our love for Christ and that you would be glorified in and through your church. That is our desire. May, may our obedience to you shine the light in the midst of darkness. And if the world hates us, may it hate us completely without cause. May you be honored through us as we seek to live for Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.